the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Recruiter.com. The following program is sponsored by Reaching Hearts Ministries. Hello and welcome back to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko's message today is the conclusion to the Genesis series entitled Adam and His Life. It's part number 24. If you've missed any of these messages in the Genesis series, we encourage you to go to reachingyourheart.com. You will find them there under the sermon series link on the main page. We'll get underway here in just a minute, but I wanted to pass along our phone number for you. So if you have any questions, the number is 877-788-5371. That's 877-788-5371. Let's get underway. Here now is our pastor teacher, Michael Oxentenko, with the conclusion to the Genesis series and the message entitled Adam and His Life. Pastor Mike. So the first time in the Bible we encounter the clear statement that something is not good. It is the realization that there is loneliness even in the grace place. Look at verse 18, Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The Hebrew says literally, I will make a helper who matches him. The idea of the Hebrew is a helper who corresponds to his need. The first person in the Bible who needed help was a man. And all the women should say, Amen. That means the woman was deliberately made for the need of the man. Her strength was her capacity to support and to help her man. It was not a lesser role, but it was a perfect matching of his need. She was created to match the one area of his weakness. Without the woman, the man was incomplete. Without the story of creation, the words of Paul might appear sexist. Let's look at them. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 9. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake. But what does it say? The woman for the man's sake. That means the woman has the greater power to sustain the heart and lift the spirit. Now, so I ask a question in light of this wonderful truth. A pointed question. How many wives here today have never discovered this basic strength that God has given them for their marriage and for their husband. A man that is worth his salt is hard enough on himself. And he doesn't need his wife to be harder on him still. A man who works hard and tries to provide for his family deserves a safe place to experience support, affirmation, and love in the arms of a wife who is not his critic. He needs a a wife who will encourage him and soften the severity of his struggle to achieve. He needs a wife who will be careful to speak well of him when she is in the presence of others and to speak tenderly to him when he needs a different point of view or perhaps correction. The heart of a man is not complete without the love of a submissive wife. And I use the word submissive. The wisest man who ever lived described the evil of a carping wife who tortures her husband with complaining at every turn in his life. Proverbs 19.13. We've read it in our Bibles, but now this day it's in church. A wife's quarreling is a continual what? Dripping of rain. Now, women, I will not ask if this applies to you, 
But if it does, let the Word of God change your behavior. A quarreling wife is the same as water torture for her husband and her children. Now, you don't want to do that, do you? We don't want any Guantanamo Bay homes around here, do we? No. Now, the love of a Christian woman is a gift from God. In contrast, the love of a Christian woman who understands her vital role is a gift from God to a grateful husband. And the key word there is grateful husband. Proverbs 19, 14, house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So God made the first woman as the first gift to a lonely man. Unlike Adam, who was made on the outside of the garden, Eve was made on the inside of the garden. Eve was created in the grace place. She was built with the garden in mind. She is a reflection and embodiment of the paradise of Eden. You ask me the question, which one of the two is the most significant work of God's creation? And I must say it with authority. The woman is the most significant work of God's creation. She is closest to the grace place in her formation by God. But the name Eve, given by Adam, believe it or not, was not her first name. Did you know that? It's her second name. Look at Genesis 2.21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Now when Adam woke up, it didn't take long for him to figure out that dreams come true in the grace place. Eve was a knockout in every single way. She was the answer to his dreams. When Adam was created, he was immature. He was the center of his own universe. He wasn't evil. He just simply had started where immature people start, very much like husbands who marry and then have to grow into the man they must be. That is why in verse 23, he named his wife after himself. Look at Genesis 2.23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. Now, the Hebrew says literally, she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish, which means him. Adam named Eve after Adam. It's nothing but the feminine form of who he is. Now, how long they lived without trouble, no one knows. But one day the serpent came along and he convinced Eve to seek a path of independent growth and development without God and her husband. Genesis 3, 5 The serpent said, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When you touch this fruit, you eat of it, you're going to be godlike. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. So what happens next is terrible. Shame appears as fear infects their relationship with each other and with God. Insecurity manifests itself for the first time as they make fig leaves and they put them together as aprons to hide themselves from God. Alienation sets in as they run from God into the forest of their personal and social isolation. Now up to this point in time, the man has protected his wife. 
God told him to guard the garden, and he has guarded it well, and he has guarded his wife. This God-given protectiveness, which belongs to the man, now becomes a mode whereby the devil can get at his very soul. So when his wife made the fatal mistake, his God-given desire to protect his wife became the vehicle the devil used to destroy his life. Paul says that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived, he said, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. God made Adam to live forever, and the woman he gave to him, he gave her to support him and to help him. And here she was, and he made the wrong choice because he wanted to protect her and die with her. Adam chose to love her more than God. In his moral and spiritual fall, he ended up loving neither. He ended up turning on his wife with resentment. The man who named his wife after himself turned on her to become her first accuser. The first accusation in the Bible is not the devil accusing God's people. The first accusation in the Bible is the accusation of a husband condemning his wife. Genesis 3.12, the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me She gave me fruit of the trees, and I ate. He looks pretty innocent there, doesn't he? Right? As soon as Adam sins, his new focus is himself and his own survival. I want a car. I want to go out with the boys. I mean, hasn't that thing been going on and on ever since? Instead of protecting his wife, he condemns her and blames her for the change in his life. Imagine the scene. There is Eve, the most beautiful woman who will ever live, standing naked before her husband and God. She was made to fill the need of a lonely man's heart. Instead, she became the servant of death who opened the grave for him. She was made to cure his loneliness. Instead, she became the means that isolated him from God. She came to him when he awoke as the answer to his dreams, and now she became the focus of his nightmare. In her striving for advancement, She left him behind and made choices on her own without him. And then she gave him the awful gift that destroyed them both. She gave him the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Her womanhood and her dignity was decimated in every way by her own sin. She stood there and there was nothing she could do. When God searches out Adam and Eve after the fall, he finds a husband that has separated himself emotionally from his wife. John Berger analyzed love and hate in this profound statement, English novelist. He said, the opposite of love is not to hate but to separate. If love and hate have something in common, it is because in both cases, their energy is that of bringing and holding together. The lover with the loved, the one who hates with the hated. But passions are tested by separation. So how does God save the first marriage? More profound than hate is separation. How does God reach the heart of Adam to teach him how to love on the wrong side of Eden's door? There are three interventions that saved the first marriage, and I want you to write them down. Intervention number one, God redefined the marriage relationship after the fall to include headship. Genesis 3.16, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The word for rule in the Hebrew is the word for gentle leadership of one whose strength matches the need of the one he rules. God defined the role of the husband in a post-fall world with clarity. Headship here, though, does not mean the husband is a dictator. Headship does not mean the husband can demean. 
Headship does not mean that the woman has no rights. And it does not mean that the wife must be subject to other men, like in the church or in society at large, or that she cannot be a leader in the world or in the church. I mean, these are all misapplications of this principle. The modern feminist movement today has taught women to reject headship in the home, and that's where the evil lies. There are liberal theologians today who argue that this is an antiquated idea that belongs to the past. I've worked with pastors who argue that way. There's only one problem with that argument. The apostles who had direct contact with the Lord Jesus affirmed the principle of headship in Genesis 2. And the early church obeyed them not because of sociology or physiology or psychology, but because the apostles told them to. And that's the reason why the early church had sustainable families. They obeyed apostolic authority. Now, dear heart, if you have to choose between apostolic authority and human authority to make decisions for your home, you better choose apostolic authority. Look at Ephesians 5.23. Notice the symmetry of Paul's counsel. Verse 23 and then verse 28. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And is it himself its what? You cannot be the savior of your wife if you do not have headship in the home. You cannot rescue your wife if you are not in the role to be the rescuer. And so many a woman wants a prince to come and sweep her off her feet and take her to a better land, but she refuses to let him have headship in the home. The two are impossible. There must be headship to be the Savior, the prince in shining armor. Verse 28, Even so husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So we find the apostles in agreement with God's counsel in Genesis 2. Intervention number two, God provides hardships to develop character in the man and his wife. Genesis 3.16, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing In pain you shall bring forth children. Verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Intervention number three comes before the other two in the sequence of the text. And it is really the most important of them all. Here God takes the demoralized woman who stands in her shame And he makes her the focus of a new promise for life. The deepest kind of grace finds the most desperate place to be poured out. Last night, I received a phone call from a friend far away. It's amazing, as I was writing this sermon on the importance of love, the importance of right relationships in the marriage, she announced to me on the phone that she was divorcing her husband. While that sounds like a terrible thing, she explained why. She said, I have been for the last two years striving to hold my family together. I found pornography on the internet. She said, I struggled with evidences of infidelity where he let me down again and again. I saw a letter where he had said that he had intimate desires for another person. I found it on his email. And I confronted him with it. And he told me that he did nothing wrong, that he did not violate his marriage vows. She said, yes, you have. You violated your marriage vows because you compromised the promises you made. Even if you didn't go all the way, you went far enough to drive me away. 
And as I was talking with her, I was sharing with her some of the outline of the sermon here. And I said, you know, God took a decimated woman who had no future, and he chose to make her the focus of all that could be for the future. Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God promises that one day the woman who had been shamed, the woman who had been put down, would give life to a son, and the son would defeat the devil. Now, Adam knew what it meant, loud and clear. He had brains, even though he was in a fallen state. Life and salvation, the promise that God was making before him, would come through the woman. She would have a son, and he would crush the devil's head. The only way back to Eden is through the woman. And without the woman, without a family, without love, without a son, there is no life for him, no future for him. At this point, Adam understands her new position in relationship to his fallen life. His wife becomes the object of grace in a fallen world. It is no longer Ish and Isha, man and woman, man and wife in the light of God's promise. Something has changed. A switch has clicked in Adam's fallen head. For Adam to live, Adam must embrace the truth that his wife is his very life. It is now Adam and his life. Adam and his wife must become in his mind. Adam and his life. This time Adam names his wife with the name that sticks for all time. Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The name Eve is taken from the Hebrew word for life. Chava comes from Chayah. Adam named his wife literally life. Every time he kissed her, he said, I love you, life. Every time he held her close, he says, you are my life. The word wife was eliminated. It was now the word life. Life was not easy on the outside of the garden, but somehow God's love made a way for Adam to find life in his wife. Adam was committed to his wife the rest of his life because he recognized in Eve his very future. Every home is a garden for good or evil. When a man rejects his wife or someone else, he is choosing to die an early death on the outside of God's garden. My friend who has turned his back on his wife in this phone call that I mentioned is committing emotional and relational suicide. And a wife who loves her husband will be committed to the man who gives her the dignity her love and life deserve. If she does not, then she is not worthy of the husband she is married to. And there are women today who are not worthy of committed, faithful husbands who whack and hack at their husbands at every turn in life. There is no place for a Christian wife to exert a selfish authority and wreck her home because she wants to be in charge and forge an independent path over the head of her husband who loves her. A Christian wife will be prudent and invest in her husband and her family and will fulfill God's promise as a sustainer of his very life. And a wise and grateful husband will never forget that he cannot live without his life, which is his wife. He has damaged manhood on the wrong side of Eden's door, and he needs his wife to find a place for grace. She becomes the garden he lost. Her heart and her home is the grace place on the wrong side of Eden's door. To lose her is to lose life itself. The wisest man who ever lived understood that marriage is the union of a man 
and his life. Song of Solomon 4.12, Solomon wrote, A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A garden locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard. Nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense. Myrrh and aloes with all chief spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. The only way man can find Eden is to find a wife who takes him back to the garden. Man and life. Over 50 years ago, a young man named Lou fell in love with a woman named Zhu. Sounds almost like something out of a comic book, but it's Chinese. She was 10 years older than him. According to Chinese custom, it was taboo for a younger man to marry a woman older than himself. To find a place for grace where the gossips couldn't seek them out, they both eloped to a distant district in China to spend the rest of their lives in that district, they found a cave at the top of a mountain to make their new home out of. It was a place that would be for them a grace place. In their new life together, they had nothing to begin a future with. They came poor, no electricity, no food, no cooking utensils, very little with them. They were poor with the goods of this world, but rich in the stuff that makes life work. They loved each other. They were forced in the first year to eat roots they managed to dig out of the mountains. A major breakthrough came when Lou made a kerosene lamp to brighten his wife's life. That was a major gift for Zoo. The second year, he started a project to make life easier for his wife. He had a longer view of things. He began to hand-carve steps down the mountain so she could make the walk with minimal effort. He had an eye for the future. He knew she was relatively young, but she would not always be young. So he made the steps one at a time, knowing that one day it would be difficult for her to make the journey in her old age. A half a century later, a team of adventurers, 50 years later, were exploring the mountain when they found a 6,000 stone ladder carved into the mountain. At the top of the mountain, they found an elderly couple very much in love. On the mountain, they had children and they had started a family, so there was more than two. One of the children gave this report of their parents' love. My parents loved each other so much. They lived in seclusion for over 50 years and never have been apart for a single day. He hand-carved more than 6,000 steps over the years for my mother's convenience, although she doesn't go down the mountain that much. Recently, at 72 years of age, Lou returned from his work on the mountain and he collapsed. He was younger than Zoo, and this wasn't supposed to be. I mean, she was over 10 years older than he was. Zoo sat with Lou and prayed as he died in her arms. When he died, his death grip held his wife's arm tight, and she felt the hand that would not release the hold. The man who lived his entire life for his wife died holding on to her as his very life. As Zoo sat by her husband, she wept. She said, you promised me you'll take care of me. You'll always be with me until the day I died, and now you left before me. How am I going to live without you? Lou built a love ladder for his wife to help her journey in life up and down the mountain as she walked the course of her life. But what would happen after his life? The Chinese government has now taken charge of the mountain. And the 6,000-step ladder will be preserved for the future as a monument to their love. Because of the love ladder, Zhu's home is a museum dedicated to her husband's love of his wife. 
And as long as she lives, she lives and she is supported financially by the legacy of the man who dedicated his life to his wife. I appeal to all men of virtue here today. What will be the legacy of your life work? Will it be broken promises and failed commitments that shatter your children's future and breaks the heart of your faithful wife? And I say faithful wife because there are wives at times who are not faithful, but of your faithful wife. Or will you build a love ladder, dear heart, that outlives you and points your children and their children to heaven and to God? What will be the legacy of your life? Adam discovered the truth of life itself when he found Eve anew on the wrong side of Eden's door. He discovered that his future was not merely Adam and his wife. It was Adam and his life. He chose to love Eve. He chose to cherish Eve. He chose to work through the character flaws that had found their way into his wife because of the fall, because he discovered in her his very life. Thanks for tuning in today to Reaching Your Heart. That will conclude the Genesis series and part number 24 entitled Adam and His Life. If you'd like to listen to this message again, it's available under the sermon series link. On the main page, just look for Genesis series under reachingyourheart.com. Our phone number here is 877-788-5371, 877-788-5371. You can call that telephone number with any questions that you have at any time. You can contribute to the ongoing work of this ministry by sending your tax-deductible contribution to Reaching Hearts International, 15300 Spencerville Court, Suite 201, Burtonsville, Maryland, 20866. Once again, that address, Reaching Hearts International, 15300 Spencerville Court, Suite 201, Burtonsville, Maryland, 20866. You can also donate online at reachingyourheart.com. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to see you at the worship service. You can find all the details on that worship service at reachingyourheart.com. We invite you to spend a little time there. Or you can call us, and we'll be happy to give them to you over the phone. That phone number is 877-788-5371. Once again, 877-788-5371. Thanks for listening, and as always, we pray that God is reaching you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.